All right. This is Hebrews 2020 once again, and we see Jesus. Increment 85, but we're going to double it up a little bit as something else today. And we're going to take a forward look in more ways than one deeper into Hebrews, namely Hebrews 12, 22 to 24, a little bit later. And so we'll begin with prayer. Father, we thank you for the birth of your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you even more so for his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his exaltation to your right side, where we see him now crowned with glory and honor. We ask that you'll use this message to elevate our thinking and our intentionality, to illuminate our spirits, to lift the hearts of many, and to deliver Christmas grace into the heart and soul of all who hear this. We ask it in Christ's name, amen. As happens almost every year, I don't start out planning to do a Christmas message. This year I was especially committed to not doing one. But on a whim, I obtained a book called Goodness and Light, which is a kind of collection of readings by various writers on both Advent and Christmas. And it's titled by date. The December 21st writer was Hans Urs von Balthasar, or Balthasar, whom I've read some other things about and from whom I've read some really good things. And so I picked his writing titled December 21st. So this message will still be Hebrews 2020, We See Jesus. It'll be increment 85, but it's going to double as a Christmas message. He wrote a kind of meditation regarding what he called the high God and what the high God has done with regard to Christmas. And I was especially attentive to the following paragraph. The Lord, the high God, has left his glory behind him and gone into the dark world, into the child's apparent insignificance, into the unfreedom of human restriction and bonds, into the poverty of the crib. This is the Word in Action, capital W. And as yet the shepherds do not know, no one knows how far down into the darkness this Word in Action will lead. At all events, it will descend much deeper than anyone else into what is worldly, apparently insignificant, and profane, into what is bound, poor, and powerless. So much so that we shall not be able to follow the last stage of his path. A heavy stone will block the way, preventing the others from approaching. While in utter night, 
in ultimate loneliness and forsakenness, he descends to his dead human brothers. That was a pretty potent paragraph, at least it hit me that way. So this morning I thought that Pam and I, sending out Christmas cards this year is not in the cards. We usually like to get the grandsons together and take a picture of the both of them, etc., but not this year. So in one way, this present message is our Christmas card to all of you who hear it. Nine months now into the worldwide pandemic that has tested the whole world, we are now in an intensified state of many of us separation from loved ones, both our natural families and our spiritual families. Now much has been made about the right of churches to assemble even in such a time as this and there's been some legal wrangling about it in our own country. But I view this whole experience as an opportunity to appropriate the grace of God in an entirely new way, in a way that has been very long necessary. It's long been necessary to appropriate grace in this way. We're learning that what is most vital is a coalition of hearts and a solidarity of spirits human spirits, not a gathering of bodies. The church that Jesus is building is a coalition of hearts and a solidarity of spirits. It's an internal gathering of the spirits of justified persons who constitute the prolepsis of a universal eschatological community that lives and moves and has its being in God's immediate presence. A gathering of persons in person does not necessarily indicate a unified assembly. In fact, sometimes a gathering of bodies in person is the collision of divisions as was the case in Corinth. God is building a unified coalition of hearts and minds and of renewed and steadfast spirits. For this reason, as well as for other reasons, it is very important, more than you know, more than I can say, that we've been studying the five levels of human intentional consciousness with an emphasis on the fifth level. The fifth level is a coalition of hearts, a union of spirits with the Spirit of the Lord. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is a liberty that far transcends even the treasured personal and civil freedoms that are now being seriously threatened in America and elsewhere. We've only had a preview of that threat. 
During this nine-month gestation period, there's been a lot of talk about what is essential. In fact, who is essential? Well, what is essential is a coalition of hearts that are being taught by God to love one another. 1 Thessalonians 4.9, John 6.45, Isaiah 54.13. Our separation, in my view, has not ultimately been mandated by man. It has been commanded by the eternal God. If man alone mandated it and forbade it, I would be obeying God and not man, and therefore disobeying man. But the Most High God has mandated it. I'm convinced. He's mandated this time of absence and separation. It's his will that we identify with the absence and separation that his son experienced on Calvary's hill. Now, we'll never touch that. But the moment we get the slightest identification with it, we ought to thank God. Those who are just gutting it out until we meet again physically are missing the whole point. But, of course, it's not too late to get it. The Coalition of Hearts, Cardias, as we have it in Hebrews, is a community of spirits, of human spirits, of justified persons in solidarity, established by grace, strengthened with unqualified assurance of the efficacy of the once and for all and forever self-sacrifice of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Imagine a people in sol solidarity rendered unified in their unqualified assurance of the efficacy, 100% efficacy, of Christ's self-sacrifice for sins. The fellowship experienced by this coalition of hearts and solidarity of spirits is not just the harmonious rapport of human beings. It's a fellowship of human and divine persons. And in fact, a celebration that includes myriads of angels, divisions of ten thousands of ten thousands of angels. Faithful is God by whom you were invited into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. That's what Paul said in the beginning of what's known as the Corinthian Correspondence. The Corinthians Correspondence is a series of letters back and forth from Paul to a congregation of believers in Corinth. Some people think that the first and second Corinthians is made up of four segments of letters or just two letters, but in any case, we call it the Corinthian correspondence. At the very beginning of it, he says this, faithful is God by whom you were invited into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. 
At the end of that canonical record called 1st and 2nd Corinthians, if you put them both together as one large correspondence, 2nd Corinthians 13.13, Paul writes, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship, once again, of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So there's a kind of inclusio in all of the correspondence of God having called us into fellowship with himself, with a triune God. It's what theologians call a circumincession, a mutual perichoresis of fellowship of human and divine persons. Now, the apostle wrote, Faithful is God, by whom you were invited into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. In 1 Corinthians 1.9, he then immediately continues in verse 10 to say this. Nevertheless, I urge. Now that word urge is again very important in Hebrews as well as throughout the New Testament. Para kaleo. Para kaleo. P-A-R-A-K-A-L-E, Omicron, or Omega-O, Parakaleo. And in fact, the whole, as we've said many times, the whole homily called Hebrews is called a word of paraklesis, the noun form. So in 1 Corinthians 1.10, again, Paul says, Nevertheless, I urge, it means to impart intense incentive to people, I urge you, sisters and brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus the Messiah, that you all say the same thing. Now, that doesn't mean you go around parroting the same slogans. But it means that you all have the same confession. And then he said that there be no divisions among you, and that you be made complete which means to come into full solidarity with the same understanding or insight and the same intention. Now, if that's not an urgent call for a coalition of hearts, then nothing is. I can't be together with Paul in the same room, but I can be in a coalition of hearts and solidarity of spirit with him. I can't be in the same room with the Corinthian saints, the Ephesian saints, the Thessalonian saints, the saints that were written to in Hebrews, and neither can you. We're in a different time, but we can be in a coalition of hearts. We can be in a solidarity of spirits, and we're all going to see each other once and for all in the future. And we will be a gathering of bodies, resurrected bodies. Paul's appeal is an urgent appeal for unity on the fifth level of intentional human consciousness in Christ. In fact, it is unity by all having the mind of Christ. His mentality of love. His disposition and intentionality of obedience. So we have the same mind by having the mind of Christ. 
Now this coalition, or solidarity of hearts and minds, includes the intention to keep moving forward toward the objective of completion in Christ. It's a flot, F-L-O-T, forward line of troops, as described in Philippians 1.27, as described in Philippians 3.13. This one thing I do, forgetting those things that are behind, I press on toward the mark of the prize of the upward summons, onward and upward summons of God in Christ Jesus. This coalition of hearts and minds includes the intention to keep moving forward toward the objective of completion in Christ, which we have much more to say about in the future. God is building a coalition of hearts and spirits, a people of a purified conscience, true heart, authentic faith, not fake faith. He's building an internal community of self-transcendent subjects. People who live beyond themselves in Christ, outside of themselves, in the Holy Spirit, in whom deliberation and decision has been sublated by self-forgetting, unfeigned, fervent love for God, for Jesus Christ, and for the born ones of God, and for those not yet born of God. He's building a company of companions for his Messiah, for Jesus. In today's Christmas card, then, is the gift of an anticipation of a teaching that is even now in the planting stage. I've called it Uranopolis. I've begun to hint at it. And so today includes a forward look toward which we can look with hope, with expectation. Two questions are put to you right now, and I put it to myself too. Two questions that are really one question. Where are we going? Where have we come? Now that sounds like two different questions, but it's really one. Because where we are going is where we have already come. but we have not yet come completely to this place. The answer to this question is found late in the Hebrews homily, but also throughout all this discourse. We are going to the heavenly city, and we've already come to it. Hebrews 12, Paul talks a little bit, or not Paul, but the writer to Hebrews, the PT, talks a little bit about the horrific and frightening appearance of God on Mount Sinai. Even Moses feared and quaked at the sight, etc. But the PT says, you haven't come to that mountain. You haven't come to Mount Sinai. You're not to be governed by 
the sin-hijacked law. On the contrary, he says, and this is my translation, it's pretty fresh, did it this morning. Hebrews 12, 23, on the contrary, that is contrary to approaching or coming to Mount Sinai, you have approached Mount Zion. That is the city of the living God. We've looked at the living God in Hebrews 3.12 with a severe warning not to depart from or stand aloof to the living God by an evil heart of unbelief. We see the living God again mentioned in Hebrews 9.14 where it says, How much more shall the blood of Christ purify your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? How much more the blood of Christ who offered himself without spot as a lamb to God. Purify your conscience. On the fourth level of, of your consciousness to serve the living God on the fifth level with others. On the contrary, you have approached Mount Zion. That is the city of the living God. The heavenly Jerusalem. You've come to myriads of angels in celebratory assembly. It's in the perfect tense, you know. It says you have come. You have approached this city. We, are, we have approached it. We have come to it. And yet we have not yet fully entered. To the community, it says, of the firstborn. This whole thing really is climactic in Hebrews. And from this climactic place, this high elevation, I intend to or want to at least do a final series called Oranopolis. Oranopolis the heavenly city, based on Jeremiah 51.50, looked at metaphorically, let Jerusalem come into your mind. Let the new Jerusalem come into your mind. The new Jerusalem into our mind, into our fifth level of consciousness, is Uranopolis. It's the heavenly city. It's our citizenship in action while we live out our lives in this dark age in this evil age, as lights for the world. So once again, let's look at it. On the contrary, you have approached Mount Zion. That is the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Myriads of angels in celebratory assembly. To the community of the firstborn. Now the firstborn is mentioned already in Hebrews 1.6. You know where he is? He's already in future world. When he comes into future world by resurrection, God commands all the angels, myriads of them, to worship him. Picture divisions of ten thousands times ten thousands and ten thousands and ten thousands of angels worshiping Jesus 
in future world, which is present. Future world, which is present. The community of the firstborn, then, is a reference back to Hebrews 1.6, where the firstborn, who is worshipped by all the angels of God, Psalm 97.7, which is the Greek text 96.7, quoted in Hebrews 1.6. You have come to the community of the firstborn, the church, therefore, of the firstborn, ecclesia, enrolled in heaven, to God, the judge of all. Now, I say this and translate it with this sense because if you read the whole thing, you'll see that it's true. To God, the justifying judge of all. God is the judge who justifies all. God is the, the God who justifies, as Romans 8.33 says. 8.33 and 34 is phenomenal. Who's going to lay a charge against you? Who's going to condemn you? God who justifies Christ who died? God who justifies, justifies all because of his son's work on the cross and his resurrection. Romans 5.18 paired with Romans 8.30. Therefore, God is ultimately the justifying judge of all. So you have come to Mount Zion, that is the city, Paulus, of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, heavenly Uranus or Epuranus. There where you have those two together, you have Urano and Paulus, Uranopolis. So let me read it again, starting at verse 22. On the contrary, you have approached Mount Zion, that is the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to myriads of angels in celebratory assembly, to the community of the firstborn, enrolled in heaven, to God, the justifying judge of all, and to the spirits of justified persons made complete. The spirits of justified persons. You're a justified person. You have a human spirit. It's the essential you. But we are not yet made complete by an act of resurrection of our bodies. Nevertheless, we are the spirits of justified persons. And I love this verse in 24. To the mediator of a new covenant, Jesus, and to the sprinkled blood that is more eloquent than that of Abel. The eloquence of the blood of Jesus is a subject that would take ten messages at least. But we've come to the mediator of a new covenant, Jesus, and to the sprinkled blood, that's the blood of atonement, his own blood, that speaks more eloquently than the blood of Abel, which spoke to God from the ground. You say it spoke about retribution on Cain. No, it didn't. It spoke about mercy on Cain, for God had mercy on Cain. And the blood of Jesus speaks more eloquently than that because his blood speaks of mercy on all sinners for all time. 
Now, what we have here in Hebrews 12, 23 to 24, 22 to 24, and this is of supreme importance, and again, I just made this discovery this morning. This is an allusion, an allusion to Psalm 48, verses 1 and 2, which you see even more clearly in the Greek text, or the Septuagint, of, which is Psalm 47, 2 to 3, and this is what it says. Great is the Lord and exceedingly praiseworthy in the city of our God, his holy mountain, Mount Zion, the city, and that's the word polis, the city of the great king. Polis, that's where we get the word Uranopolis, P-O-L-I-S, polis, the city of the great king. Well situated on the northern slopes of the mountains of Zion, the source of joyful celebration for the whole earth. I don't know if you see the significance of this, but this is speaking of a future joyful celebration because of the liberation of the whole creation. Great is the Lord and exceedingly praiseworthy in the city of our God, his holy mountain, Mount Zion, the city of the great king. Now we've already seen that this city is a heavenly city in Hebrews. It is a heavenly Jerusalem. We are to let the heavenly Jerusalem into our mind. Let the thinking of Uranopolis, the city-state of heaven, govern our thinking, create a solidarity in our spirits, and a coalition of hearts. That's what God is teaching us as we are separated from physical separation, as we are absent from one another, as we are not able to gather physically, a gathering of bodies. If you don't realize that this is what God has done, I'm speaking only as a pastor teacher of a local assembly, then you miss the whole point of the last nine months of what God is doing. Never mind what governors are doing. This is the governor of the universe we're talking about. I've never felt like I was under a strict lockdown. I felt like I was under a liberated lockdown. Of course, we care for people who are vulnerable to this disease. And we take great care and should because that's thing, a thing called love. But God has commanded something far greater with a far greater purpose in mind. And there are future tests that are coming to this country and to this generation that will be greater and deeper and more severe. But they too will have a divine purpose as means of God pouring out greater grace than before. The great king here in Psalm 48, 1-2, LXX 47, 2-3, this great king is a reference to the priestly king who, like Melchizedek, is the king of Salem or Jerusalem and who is also a priest of the Most High God. The great king is Jesus. This is the city for which Abraham looked 
wandering around in tents without foundations, he looked for a city that has permanent foundations, a city with foundations whose builder and maker is God. My Christmas present to you is a forward look at this city and the declaration that you have already approached it. We too look for this city, but we've already come to it. We look for it by functioning in it before it becomes a universal eschatological reality. It is an abiding city, an eternal city, one with immovable foundations, 12 of them. We have no such ever-continuing city here on earth. No matter how lauded and applauded are the metropolises of New York, Los Angeles, Washington, D.C., Pittsburgh, Rome, Paris, Moscow, Beijing, Lagos, Cairo, Cape Town, or the present Jerusalem. None of these cities continues forever, but the heavenly Jerusalem does. And so does the liberty and the freedom of that city. This is the city that we are to let into our minds as even now, as we study Hebrews, God allows us the privilege of surveying its environs. If you're sick already about hearing about the fifth level of consciousness, don't be. You and I will be living on that internal level forever, even when our bodies will have been transconfigured in the ultimate bodily transition by the omnipotent power of unrestricted love when our deliverer comes from heaven. We can live on the self-transcendent level of intentional consciousness now, where we truly have the mind of Christ and his obediential intentionality, even now. Though when he comes a second time, bringing salvation and ever thereafter, we will have his mind without interrupting thoughts intruding temptations and distractions, a conflation of theonomy and autonomy, God's will and our will, a conflation of theonomy and autonomy as already found now in the Son of God, freedom indeed. This past nine months has been a time of darkness for many. In fact, some have gone through what the old mystics used to call the dark night of the soul. It's been a very dark time for some. In other words, this nine-month worldwide test has been an occasion for deep personal tests, interpersonal tests, 
family tests, marital tests for many. But it's like the darkness of the womb. It's like the darkness of the heart of the earth, the interior of the earth. The darkness that's in the womb speaks of an anticipation of a birth into the light. The darkness of the heart of the earth is anticipation of resurrection from the dead into eternal life and eternal light. The prophet Isaiah said this in Isaiah 50 and verse 10, and it's profoundly meaningful. Who among you fears the Lord, reveres the Lord, has profound regard for him? Listening to the voice of his servant, Who among you walks in darkness and has no light? Let him trust in the name of the Lord. Let her trust in the name of the Lord. Let him or her lean on their God. Is this Christmas different for you, the whole season? Is it different? Is there darkness that seems to pervade it? Then realize that this is the greatest Christmas of all for you. Because you are allowed to experience the darkness of the womb. As did the one who was conceived by the Holy Spirit in a virgin woman. You are sharing in a tiny measure of the experience of the darkness of the tomb where Jesus lay after his lonely, confined, and brutal crucifixion in anticipation of his glorious and universally inclusive resurrection from the dead. It isn't in the artificially colored light of holiday celebrations. It isn't in the well-lit homes where parties are had. It isn't even in the glowing faces of little kids who tear open their gifts with breathless expectation. No. It's in the darkness of a womb. The darkness of a cave the dark horror of the murder of innocence in the attempt to murder God's king as an infant. It's in the darkness that overshadowed Golgotha as Jesus screamed in utter forsakenness at the end of an unequaled mission of self-forgetting and universe-saving love. That's where the authentic meaning of Christmas is found so blessed are you this year more than any other year before God destined this Christmas to be especially meaningful he hasn't deprived us of Christmas 
and neither have our governors. The governor of the universe desires to teach us its true and lasting truths. Another word besides essential that we hear repeatedly lately is efficacious, efficacy. We hear that the vaccines that are now being delivered to millions have a 94 or 95% efficacy toward healing toward immunity. And that's great. That's surely good news, and we're grateful to God for it and grateful to all the people who aided in its development, to the military organization that's delivering it. And, of course, each person must decide in his own heart about whether to take it or whether to uh, administer it or have it for children or families. That's... But the point is, efficacy is the word that's tossed around with essential. But efficacy means something more to us. The unspeakable suffering of Jesus under cover of the darkness of Calvary was and is and always will be 100% efficacious for the restoration of all things, the justification of all of humanity, and the liberation of all of creation from its slavery to corruption. We hear a lot about corruption today, and there's a hell of a lot of it around. And a lot of it is in those lauded and applauded cities that, thank God, will not continue forever. All of creation will be liberated from slavery to corruption. The more corrupt a government, the more tyrannical. The more it sells out its citizens. But we belong to the kingdom of God first. We belong to an incorruptible city-state. Our citizenship is primarily in heaven. We have the unspeakable privilege of having on the fifth level of our human intentional and rational consciousness an interpersonal sharing of unqualified confidence in the 100% efficacy of the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we have the unparalleled privilege of seeing him who tasted death for everyone far from God so that he could bring us all near by his own blood. This God, this man, this man Christ Jesus. We see Jesus even now in the eyes of our heart and our imagination. We see him crowned with glory and honor. Because we've approached the city of the great king and the heavenly Jerusalem. We are already among the spirits of justified people 
and we await our final completion. We see him now through a glass darkly, in a mirror obscurely. But we will all see him face to face, and we will be like him, crowned with a glory and honor that is courtesy of his grace. And now, Father, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, Father of lights, God of all grace, grant us Christmas grace to elevate our spirits, to lift our hearts, to illuminate our minds. Please, Father, let the New Jerusalem, the city of the great King, come into our minds. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.